You're listening to the Screaming Pods Network. Speaking through my expensive headset. Turtle Beaches. Yeah. They're actually, it's a gaming uh, for video games. But it works for this too. Alright. Beasley, go lay down. sounded really weird. I mean, I've been watching movies (laughs) since the beginning of the year, and we've only had, like, three shows. Um, I'm just going to talk about what I can't, like, what would be fun to talk about. I watch a lot of movies now. Uh, Jesus, I've watched so much shit. Um, well, I've watched a lot of shit, too. Yeah, well, I'll talk about some of the shit, because it'll be fun to shit on it. Um. Yeah, it's, like, yeah, it's, like, yeah, it's, like. (laughs) But, yeah, it's, um. Holy cow, I almost forgot. We'll get the door. some of this bullshit. Wish Sean was here so I could fucking talk shit about scary stories. Yeah, he he really liked it. I thought it was fucking bullshit. Alright. How do you look for headphones? Like, I have 16,000 fucking pairs of headphones through my house. Like, I have, like, three gaming headsets. I have fucking workout headphones like three pairs. Janice has a bunch of pairs for audiobooks at night. She even has those fucking um, that headband that that you put on and it actually will like Bluetooth. It, so like play. So she listens her audiobooks with this headband, so you can go out and like work out with it, and you can hear everything. But you just don't wear headphones. Yeah, earbuds hurt my ears for the most part because they're just always weird. 
like how they fit and then I don't want to wear headphones like to the gym or something because then that part gets really sweaty. They actually have these badass, um, I saw them at Best Buy the other day and you can't even hear them like when you turn it up you can only hear them when you put them on and it's uh, sunglasses and the way they're designed the the it's quiet around you but you can hear the music really well when you have them on. It's insane. I'll wait till someone does a knockoff. Ooh, I can do that. What is this? That part gets really sweaty. Can you see that laughing? In this? Can you see those emojis? Can you see? <laughs> what, what, what is that? Uh, what, what was that old commercial just for men? Hold it. This isn't you, it's an older guy. Oh, that was before I got rid of my gray hair with Just For Men hair color. Come on, that's too natural to be hair coloring. Just For Men. I thought there was, I thought there was like a shampoo or something that was like Just For Men. Is that a, like a brand, Just For Men? Is that actually what it is? Ugh, I don't even know. If I start to ramble, which I think I'm the rambler, um, just like put a little comment in there say shut the fuck up or something like that and I'll wrap it up. All right. Um, Jesus. Uh, I've been up since six, so I'm fucking ready. All right. Um, once upon a Hollywood. Once upon a Hollywood. <laughs> to my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake K. Hill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick Stutt, Double Cliff Booth. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff. <laughs> Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. Yeah, I'm, all, I'm always the Cliff because I will take that bullet for you. You know, and then, but no, but, but I'll get shot in a fucking heartbeat because I don't have a cliff to protect me. You know what I'm saying? This is just going to get really depressing, but, um, all right. So no, I, I don't think, um, I, I don't think he's the best character ever written, but I think it is one of my most, you know, I love that character. I love that relationship between Rick and Cliff and, um, I was just a huge, huge fan of the film, and I've literally thought about it every day since um, I've seen it. Um, I thought it was very funny. Um, I do think that Cliff killed his wife. Um, I thought it was very funny, and... I definitely laughed, and I don't hold it against Cliff. But I was I was really glad that scene ended because I was I I, I was annoyed by her. Apparently, that's Rebecca Gayhart. So like, yeah, she fucking deserved it. She killed somebody. Stop worrying about the orbs. Oh no! When that happened, because at first I thought that Rick was on that set talking to the stunt guy about him. And the scene just goes on and on and on. And then 
it ends, and then Brad Pitt's on the roof again, and I'm like, holy shit, that's fucking funniest. That, that's like literally, my, I think, my favorite moment in the film, um, or I, I guess one of my favorites. There's just so many. Um, but one of my favorite moments is when you, like, I felt like it was a gag to the audience, too. Like, holy shit, we sat there that whole time. And it was actually just a flashback, and it was just a, a simple little shrug. Like, he comes to the realization of why he's not allowed on the set. You know, I just, I, I think it's, I think it's really funny. My hands are registered as lethal weapons. We get into a fight, I accidentally kill you. I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. Okay. <laughs> and that, I think that's the that's the funniest gag because it, it just transitions to what you think is uh, Cliff on set, you know, trying to get Rick Rick a job. And I, I just I, I think that's um, or uh, Rick on set trying to get Cliff a job. Um, but yeah, no, it works. I, I think many, many things obviously work in the film, and it's going to be one of those things that slowly climbs to the top of my Tarantino. But also at the same time, like, yes, it is a Tarantino movie. It feels like a Tarantino movie, but this is the least Tarantino fi film that I, or it feels like the least Tarantino-esque of them all to me. Like, there are certain aspects of it that, like, make it come to the point of, you know, it's a Tarantino film, but it really doesn't, because there is that heart, like, you know, in it. There's there's moments in the film that I teared up pretty hard, you know? Um, I've never done that in a Tarantino film. I love Tarantino movies, but I, I there, there was a lot of, I, I felt, kind of respect, in a sense, like... Um, also the fairy tale aspect um, to it like it was funny because at the end when um, uh, Sharon Tate hugs uh, Rick Dalton and I was like oh once upon a time in Hollywood now I get it like it all like it all like clicked and I was like that's actually really really sweet you know and then I started getting a little teary eyed again at the end um, like you know what could have been and a lot of people were like, oh, he's just, you know, recycling what he did with Inglorious Bastards. And I'm like, no, not really. Like, I don't, like, yeah, it had that moment where there's that uh, switch in history. But also it was kind of like a more respectful, um, you know, uh, idea behind it. But anyways, it, it really hit me. I mean, I, I think, like... I think it's just one of those things where, I mean, Tarantino has a fascination and love for older films, and that was a, uh, a big tragedy. And, you know, it was, I, I think it was with the most respect he could have done to someone. I mean, he's mentioned Sharon Tate a few times it, through interviews and stuff like that in her films. Um,. And I think it's just his way of kind of paying paying respect to it, but also kind of creating. He really wanted to make a movie about those times, but make something a little more interesting, putting you know, uh, you know f fictional characters in it, so he can kind of play and 
you know, do what he wants. Because no one ever went to the fucking Spawn Ranch and, you know, did that shit. So I, I think, okay, so he, here's here's that, is that I took Willow to go see it. So, and she had, she has no idea um, who, who, at the time, had no idea who Charles Manson was um, and had no idea about those murders. And I, all I told her before we went, I said, you know, you're going to see um, a movie that's, that's based, because I didn't know how, it, I basically did not know what I was going to fucking see that night. And I was so happy because the, the, the trailer was great because it really didn't allude to anything. I just knew that the Manson murder, Sharon Tate was going to be there. Manson was in it. So it's got to focus somewhere around there. But I really had no idea what I was going to go see. And so I just told Willow, I said, you know, a lot of these people in this film are real. They're real people. And some bad stuff happened around them. And I said, you'll hear these names, you know, Tate, Polanski. I said, I, I imagine Steve McQueen will show up somewhere in the movie. And I was right. You know, yeah. Um, I just, I knew because of the relationship between everybody. I knew that fucking McQueen was going to pop up somewhere. Um, Bruce Lee, stuff like that. And I just said there was something really bad that happened around that time. And so Willow had no idea. And she cheered uh, during the murder <laughs> murder sequence. Um, yeah, Brandy, Brandy taking down the intruders. Um, which, yeah, it does. There is a complete, like, shift in the movie. But then it wraps right back around when the flamethrower wraps out. Because then it becomes Once Upon Hollywood again. But it really does become something else for, for a few moments. But it's really great. And I, I also love how um, – another thing out of, you know, with, with respect to Tarantino looking at the time is that nothing is glorified with, with, with the Manson family. They're all pieces of shit. They're all dirty. They're all fucking bumbling idiots. And the way that they scream and cry during the murder sequence makes just shows of how pathetic they really were. And that's what I like about it. I really like how, like, a lot of people are like, oh, it was really annoying she was screaming. No, it was showing how much of a fucking pussy she was, you know? Like, I mean, actually targeting somebody that's fucking pretty. Like, if you did, I know that's a an actress portraying somebody but at the same time is like how pathetic it is to engage in murder people that was just you know especially sharon tate i like how it didn't glorify or make them badasses or you know scary at all i was never scared of them i was more or less thinking like man what is going to happen is there is cliff going to walk in and like hear screaming up at the you know the tate house is, you know, are they going to actually fucking attack Rick and, you know, his wife? And then Cliff's going to come in. I was so fucking nervous. Like, oh, yeah, that's the thing. I was like, man, he's completely out of his fucking element. Yeah, because when, when he talks about the acid cigarette, I was like, I was like, oh, my God, that's going to come into play later. And now this whole movie's going to fucking fall apart. And I'm so fucking nervous over that fucking cigarette, you know? And, and it happens. He smokes. And I'm like, man, he's going to be out of his fucking element. Like, something bad's going to happen. But it just shows how badass fucking Cliff is. Because 
<laughs> he's like still high, but he knows for a fact that he's going to kill everybody in that house. And that's what I fucking love so much about that character is that even out of his element, he was able to like, you know, just like Van Damme it and just say, fuck it. I have to be focused. And man, I, I love that fucking ending. And I love how they treat the fucking Manson family. So it's, it, I mean, to me, it's, it's just all perfect. Like, you know, and that's the thing is that I, when I was watching it and, you know, it was just kind of like they went to the Spen Ranch and like, you know, Manson rolls around the house and I'm like really, really enjoying the film. But also I'm like, man, is this what it's going to fucking lead up to? Like, that's just so fuck. Like I like it. Part of me, I thought when I was watching the movie, like we would hear about the murder, you know, and like the movie would just move on. We wouldn't see anything, but it was building up to that. I was like, man, if he does that, I'm going to be really, really mad because there's so many fucking stupid ass fucking movies about the the Manson murders, and you know we just had that fucking haunting of Sharon Tate movie come out, which people trashed. I I have it. I have not watched it yet because I I'm kind of you know letting Once Upon a Hollywood kind of like run my life for the next few months. Um, but I even something as simple as like the movie like Wolves at Your Door that was made um, a couple couple years ago. Um, the Annabelle director made it between Annabelle movies or whatever, which I mean, the movie's actually not that bad, but again, it's one of those things that focuses way too much on the killers rather than actual Sharon Tate. And, you know, uh, I know we look at Polanski and he's a piece of shit, but Polanski had nothing to do with any of that. It was, you know, Sharon Tate and her friends and, you know, we get to watch him murdered. Like, I know the story, you know, I don't mind a true crime you know, thing focusing on both, but don't focus on the killers to glorify it and make them scary. Because honestly, I think they did all that by luck, and you know, just like killers do and home invaders, you catch somebody off guard. And so, I I really enjoyed the aspect of them just getting fucking butchered and maimed and burnt. Um, that was a good time. Sean probably hasn't seen it because he's too busy watching scary stories. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's going to be... Like, Pulp Fiction shifted... And it's something that Pulp Fiction really doesn't get credit for, or Tarantino. It shifted some movies, the way they're made, and, uh, you know, release tactics, and kind of the aspect of storytelling. Because, I mean, there was a lot of films that came out after that that tried to play off a little bit of the Pulp Fiction, but it really did shift... Uh, films, kind of like how Scream did. It really shifted horror, and Pulp Fiction did that. Um, and I think we've already made that shift, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would have been one of those films if it came out years ago. It would have shifted um, kind of the direction that he did with Pulp Fiction, I think. Um, because I, I love Tarantino's movies. I, I love Hateful Eight, Django's Okay. Um, uh, you know, I love Jackie Brown. Pulp Fiction, um, uh, Kill Bill, and Jackie Brown. Th those, those, those are my top three. Um, yeah, see, Django's at the bottom of my Tarantino list. And I, I really like Django, but, I mean, it's one of those that is definitely my least favorite um, Tarantino flick. Yeah, well, and what's the fuck up with people saying Death Proof's not very good? Like, I thought we were all, like... like well, what is up with this idea? You know what? I'm not even going to bring it up. 
But I'm not going to get into this whole, like, uh, film, these new film people, like, trashing stuff. Like, I think last year we trashed, like, Spielberg or something, where everybody's like, oh, he's not that great. You know, Scorsese's not that great. And I was like, maybe you shouldn't watch movies anymore. You know? But, like, it's just, it it is irritating because it's these new, like, film people that... You know, it's really funny. Janice and I were watching um, an episode of The Office the other day, and um, there's a, a part where Evan uh, Peters or whatever, the guy that plays like Quicksilver and the other Marvel things, is that Evan Peters? Um, he he says he's really into film, and his two favorite films are Citizen Kane and Boondock Saints. And I fucking laugh so hard at that. And I was like, those are film bros. It's exact like, The Office actually, like, probably B.J. Novak wrote that line. And he was, like, poking fun at those fucking film people. When I really discovered what a director does, and that is, um, I saw Citizen Kane on television for the first time. And I began to become aware of editing and camera positions. Um, and what I guess happened there, of course, is that what he did, Wells, was... Literally, he was not afraid of being self-conscious with the camera and making self-reverential remarks with the camera and literally letting the audience understand. Yes, the camera is looking through the floor up into the ceiling. You know, Wells did this and it ha- he did it with such conviction and with such brilliance that you began to realize, ah, I see the camera moves and I began noticing camera movement because he used that wide-angle lens a great deal. And if you use a wider-angle lens and you move quick enough, you see the walls speeding past you, you know. Um, and this is what I think Wells brought to uh, cinema, uh, to American cinema particularly, because up to that time, it was the seamless film, in a way. Um, the hidden camera, the, the, uh, the camera that you couldn't tell was there. So Wells was the, the one to really break open, open up the Pandora's box of uh, cameras flying up. In, the, in, a, in a funny way, I guess, uh, picking up where silent films left off, the odd thing about the picture, and I've seen it countless times, you know, the enigma of it is Kane itself, Kane, Kane himself. You don't know him. You can't get to know him. Uh, he's afraid of knowing himself. He's afraid of letting anything out that might uh, that might be uh, uh, indicative of his feelings, his emotions. Uh, and it's not—he's not passive, though. He's saying he's not passive, but he's got this this wall up. That uh, how many times I've seen the picture? I cannot get. Um, I can't really feel for him as much as I did in the beginning. But in the beginning, when I first saw the film, many times I was more, I was feeling more for Orson Welles himself acting in the film. I liked him personally. And that's exactly what it is. It's like Scorsese's not that good. Scorsese's probably the only fucking filmmaker that hasn't made a bad movie in his entire life. You know? But I'm saying, like, as long as Scorsese's been around and how many films he's made, like, give me a fucking break. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. The women only had 97 words. The men had 370. What? (laughs) You you actually sat there and did that? Like, you calculated that out? (laughs) Okay, we're moving on. Some people believe if we repeat stories often enough, they become real. They make us who we are. That can be scary. 
eat it. Harold. Do you want to see Haunted House? Some kids went missing, so they boarded it up. Okay, we saw it. Should we go now? Who ordered the chicken? What's that? It's a book of scary stories. Tell me a story. What's going on? Tommy's missing. Tommy's name was in the book. There's no way it's actually connected, right? Okay, what if what happens in the book is exactly what's happened for real? Oh my god. Augie! Stella! Listen, you're in the next story. We're reading it right here. It's a corpse looking for her missing toe. I'm afraid that we woke something up. You shouldn't have taken the book. We've got to stop it. Sarah Bellows' book, where the stories write themselves and it all comes alive. The jangling man is coming. I mean, Amy Wuthermer said on like social media before, like her and Tarantino have you know worked things out. You know, they're they're pals. Yeah, her daughter's in the movie, and then there's this whole thing of like, well, Irma Thumer doesn't control what you know her daughter. Okay, we're moving on. I watched um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Since Sean's not here, I'll bring it up. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think that this is a film that no one's going to be talking about um, pretty much once it hits. Uh, physical media people will talk about it more obviously because the people that didn't go to the theater will see it but this movie will be soon forgotten about Um, I think we're a little too quick to hype it up because I think it's one of those things that was where you know a lot of people that are you know love horror it was in their uh, childhood as far as the books were Um, and I, I was really genuinely excited about it too but upon watching it um the characters are awful. Um, there's, I really don't think there's much of the monsters in it. Um, the monsters don't look very good. The only, the only thing that actually works is Harold, but that's, uh, it's. Um, I think the monsters in something like Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark should be uh, the stars, and the people should be kind of not shown as much. Like I, I feel like that's the main focus that. Uh, this film should have went. It was kind of surprising too because of so many people, uh, so many names were attached to it as far as filmmakers, people that I love. 
you know, like uh, Marcus Dunstan and, um, you know, of course, uh, Del Toro. Um, I was just, I was expecting uh, a lot more, I guess, in one sense. But also, upon thinking about it, it's just, it feels the monsters are just kind of glossed over. And the execution um, was just poor as far as a wraparound story. I really think it would have worked better to get multiple directors and Tales from the Cryptid or just make a bunch of short films and put them together. Um, sometimes you don't need a wraparound story for, for something like this. And I think that's probably what they focus too much on is trying to incorporate all these stories in one world rather than making it just separate stories with different, even the same filmmaker could have done it, but, you know, standalone. So that way you can focus, you know, you're not following the same characters over and over and over for an hour and a half. You're focusing on just characters for a little bit. That's why shorts work so well, um, because sometimes it's focused really about that impactful ending rather than... Um, kind of like leading up to it so yeah there is there is a documentary um it was actually one of the very first films that i helped um acquire to the wild eye label is a uh, simply titled scary stories a documentary about kind of the history of schwartz and his family and kind of the legacy that he you had and um kind of the impact speaking to the uh, film community and also other, uh, you know, uh, authors that wrote children's books and R.L. Sign is a big, big part of that documentary, which is a lot of fun. Part of Alvin Schwartz's brilliance was that he took all these old folk legends and made them readable for kids. And I think that's his particular genius. That book was talked about on the playground. There's something a little off-putting, but that's why it's so fascinating. You had to sign up a couple weeks in advance if you wanted to get them. Everybody knew these stories. And it was always a subject of dares. Like, I dare you to check out the book. Parents and teachers in a Seattle suburb will vote next week on a plan to ban three books from an elementary school library. Those who want to get rid of the book say they're just too gruesome for young readers. There is a horse that is grotesque, it is misshapen, it is disproportionate, it has a human eye. Growing up, I never really saw the Scary Stories books in light of them being widely banned. I just saw them as stories that my grandfather collected. He was the number one banned book author and he just loved that. Children have a, a need to master the fears that they have in their life. So they kind of give readers a taste of the darker side of humanity. I always found it interesting that these books were challenged because we don't discourage students from reading Greek mythology or Robin Hood. I finally got the courage to check out the book myself. <laughs> Carrying it home in my, in my backpack and feeling like it was burning up. And um, how much he respected Schwartz and kind of that inspired him as well to um, um, kind of think and, 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 and write and correct. Um, so like, one thing that actually works, you know, I think is, uh, honestly the second goosebumps film i thought that was wonderfully done i i didn't really care for the first goosebumps all that much i thought it was neat i, I thought that was a unique spin and a fun spin to incorporate all those stories together um 
But again, I was really afraid of like, how are you going to do this? And that's kind of, I think, what the scary stories thing kind of fell apart for it is is they picked um also the actors aren't very good even the comedic relief isn't that great um and it just it just doesn't work it really doesn't and i think it will be soon forgotten about and it sucks because i really was looking forward to that and kind of hoping i know people are calling it like a gate like gateway horror but i don't think it is um, I, I think uh, kids will grasp on to even older films like Gremlins, The Gate, and stuff like that more than they would scary stories. Um, or even something like Insidious, you know, something that's PG-13 or The Conjuring. That's, I think that's the new gateway horror. I don't think it's something like scary stories. It's uh, Scary stories is for the, you know, I don't know. It, it it feels the same vein of like those like Jumaji films and and things like that, like it doesn't it doesn't have kind of uh, the horror element, which is funny because of all the people that are attached to it, you know we got the people that basically you know created the fucking collector and and saw that's you know writers for scary stories it just doesn't work, um, which was very very upsetting. I am gonna give it another shot. Um, but um, we'll see. But I think the the most thing that w- with the film is, and I've said it on this show a million times, and I'll never ever stop saying it, is that you know your your film can feel long, your film can be exciting, your film can be slow, uh, but just don't make a boring one. You know, boring is the worst, and that's what scary stories is. It's just boring. Yeah, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Oh, don't tell me you're leaving. The party's just begun.